Outrage Machine, to me, is the answer to when people ask what happened to politics. Outrage Machine, to me, is all about this provocation of emotion. So to me, Outrage Machine is about how outrage is manufactured through rhetoric to create group belonging. My first thought when I heard Outrage Machine was the utilization of wedge issues to drive partisan emotions. You know, I, I really think it is dra uh, dragging down the quality of our political discourse. Hey everyone, this is Outrage Machine. It's a podcast about the political mindscape in Alberta. This is our first in our special Alberta election series. Think of it as a pop-up podcast. I'm Tim Quaringesser, and a big thank you, as always, for tuning in. Now, first, we're not here to talk polls or be partisan or yell at each other or tell you who you should vote for. Instead, we're here to talk about the messaging we're all facing during the election campaign and offer a bit of calm reflection. So with that, let's get to it. Well, hi, everyone. Uh, I guess I'm not only introducing myself to the podcast, but to this entire room, as I met you 10 minutes ago. Uh, my name is Natalie Pond. I'm a chartered professional accountant. I have a job where I do accounting things uh, during the day, and I am also an accounting instructor at the U of A. Um, I got involved in partisan politics in around 2013 uh, on a volunteer basis, and I, I really loved it. I loved the policy aspect of it, but I really loved campaigning. Um, specifically, I was involved in the Conservative Party's um, proposal to re uh, recognize equal marriage rights in 2016 at convention, and I was also on the interim joint board of the United Conservative Party. Um, right now, I'm not actually doing anything in the provincial election. I'm kind of sitting it out, staying on the sidelines and watching from afar, but I'm really excited. I'm still keeping up with what's going on, and I'm excited to talk about it today. And to you, what do you think Outrage Machine is all about? Well, my first thought when I heard Outrage Machine was um, the utilization of wedge issues to drive partisan emotions. This has always existed in politics, but I think with the rise of social media, it has really taken over the narrative and how we talk about politics today. Um, not only has it really oversimplified the discussion, but I think it's really created this tribal us versus them mentality, even when talking about things like the carbon tax or equalization. Um, you know, I used to think this was just like a partisan inside baseball bubble type of thing, but I'm really starting to see this leak kind of into the greater society now beyond just people who have political memberships because we're now starting to see some of these things leak into the mainstream media. Um, you know, I, I really think it is dra uh, dragging down the quality of our political discourse. Okay, awesome. Uh, how about we go next to Shama? Hey, this is Shama Rangwala. I'm an instructor at the University of Alberta where I did my PhD. I'm not really involved at all or even really that interested in partisan politics. Um, and my work is more about culture and systems and history and doing that kind of analysis. Um, but I care a lot about my community and I think there's a serious lack of media literacy. So I want to help educate people on how emotion is mobilized in, in public and political discourse. Awesome. And what do you think Outrage Machine means to you? You know, I was really struck by the machine aspect of this. So to me, Outrage Machine is about how outrage is manufactured through rhetoric to create group belonging so that people don't pay attention to policy, facts, what materially affects them, and things they maybe should actually be angry about. And as an educator, I think it's important for people to know and learn how to identify the difference between being angry about something factual and when they're being told to be angry in order to antagonize or demonize people who 
who are not like them. Again, it's like us versus them that Natalie was saying. Awesome. Thank you. And how about Danielle? Tell us about yourself. Yeah, I'm Danielle Parody. Uh, I'm a writer. So the way that words get used is something that always interests me. And so that's what really drew me to politics. Uh, I have some experience door knocking and I did help my friend uh, on her alderman campaign in Spruce Grove recently where we lost by 50 votes, which was brutal. Uh, But by and large, uh, how I've covered politics was through my opinion column. Uh, But I've also covered issues like feminism and race. What I noticed uh, through my writing was that things that I take for granted, uh, that people know, like the notion that an editorial or a column is meant to present a certain point of view versus um, pure reporting, like you'd find in a news story, uh, that people don't know a lot about these things. And, you know, going into uh, more recent times, now that we have websites that present news, uh, they tend to look factual. People don't know how to evaluate sources. Uh, so that's, uh, that's what really interests me about this. And what does Outrage Machine mean to you? Outrage Machine to me is the answer to when people ask what happened to politics. So we live in a so-called post-truth world, uh, and now we need to look at how politicians and pundits use strong emotions like anger and fear to control the discussion. Uh, Like it's been brought up already, that's a good way to not have to talk about policy. Uh, A lot of the criticisms that are lobbed towards both media and the politicians is that they're stoking outrage instead of discussing policy. But I also think we have to throw that back on their radar a little bit. It's like when the public says they're tired of sex scandals. Those are the stories that get the most reads and the media produces what the people want to read. I guess that leaves me. My name is Tim. I'm a writer in Edmonton with a 20-year career in journalism, including running a big city daily here in the city for a little while. Um, So I carry a bit of that traditional media experience uh, as baggage these days because it uh, was kind of built on this idea of consensus. And I think you guys have already brought this up with this like middle common ground and reconciling differences and finding different sides that pointed to some sort of common solution. That's the sort of idea that journalism was kind of built out of, at least the uh, the school that I came out of. So I've come to see this how this feel-good ideal is a little bit false and very much dead, and I've come here to discuss the political conversation in my province, which is kind of sometimes this superficial zero-sum game of outrage. So Outrage Machine, to me, is all about this sort of provocation of emotion Uh, even in my own industry, which is journalism. I found it really interesting, and I'm here to learn from you guys and maybe uh, ask some pressing questions. So with that, let's get going. Albertans will elect their next government on April 16th. From now until that date, we'll all be faced with a multitude of messages, appeals, hooks, and emotion-laden assertions. A lot of it will create outrage, fear, or anxiety, some of it will be manufactured, some of it organic, some of it strange, and some of it comic. Guys, give me your quick take on the news since the writ was dropped, and some top examples of the outrage machine. It is interesting, when um, Rachel Notley began talking about the election, this was in a piece of the journal, she was talking about how she was going to fight uh, for things, not against them. But of course, I did notice that the day after the writ dropped, um, the NDP did come out swinging with a video that tells me that their social that their strategy is probably to talk about Jason Kenney's record on social issues. Uh, that's something that I think they have since he became uh, the most evident forerunner for the UCP. That's something that they have brought up. So they they withheld uh, they they drew back uh, prior to the writ being dropped. 
weren't talking a lot. Uh, we know now that they were kind of working on this this strategy. So when I looked at Rachel Notley's uh, Twitter, just out of interest compared to how uh, what the NDP site was talking about, which was attack ads. Um, hers is actually very positive. So she's uh, she's talking about her campaign. She's doing a little bit more of what I think um, Natalie meant when she was talking about what you'd expect from the governing party. Uh, that said, she talks about education. She's talking about $25 daycare. Uh, she's sort of campaigning against the previous conservative record. So uh, it's interesting. It will see where it goes. I'm actually, um, I, I did some research and by research, I mean, I mean, I went on uh, Rachel Notley's Instagram, and uh, I think it's called the NDP one. I'm, maybe it's hers, I'm, but I'm sure I'll be corrected on social media. But anyway, I went on their Instagram, and it's like it's like you described. There's all this like positivity, and then every five or six different photos, there was like a meme with Jason Kenny, and he could have had like horns coming out of his head. It was all of that <laughs> kind of fear-based stuff that Natalie was talking about. So, uh, I, I think Shama wants to talk here look at how far behind they are in the polls. So despite being the governing party right now, they're kind of running as underdogs. And so this is a strategy. They're seeing the ways that the us versus them is being um, created on the other side. And they're like, okay, we should, we can do some of that strategizing as well. Like we have to, you know, fight on the same platform um, as, as the other side. Uh, but I do, I, I have also, like Danielle, have seen some policy there. It's really hard, I think, to strike a balance or to even know what kind of strategy to use because, the you know, when they came into power, they were running against a split conservative party, and now they're running against a, a unified one. So it's a different kind of election. But we had to wait almost a week to get $25 daycare as a policy. And if we have to go dig on social media to even find anything positive from the NDP, I think that's a big mistake. Uh one thing I like to tell people on campaigns is social media doesn't win you elections, but they can lose you an election. The fact of the matter is Sarah Hoffman's first press conference after the writ was dropped was a Jason Kenney attack website. And I think that's really disappointing. And that's what ultimately hit the news. Um, when I think about what hit them into journal or what was shown on global news that day, uh, that's what hit, not the positivity that we're seeing on her social media of hugging babies and, and you know, campaign rallies. And, and I think that's going to be a factor in this election. So do you guys think there's a bit of power in the outrage machine to kind of drive the news cycle? And are people using that? I think to Natalie's point that, you know, she was expecting to see some policy discussion and instead we got the outrage. I mean, it makes for really great television or radio or even newspaper reading. So is the outrage machine driving the news cycle? And is that kind of why we're seeing this? Or is there something else happening? Something to do with algorithms on social media and what gets shared and people are looking at headlines and they they just hit hit that like button and then that article circulates and circulates. This isn't an Albertan problem. This is actually a global problem. Like if you look at recent elections kind of all over the world, um, they're not really based on policy um, or that's not what wins them. Right. So I think we just need to think about the ways that strategies are just changing because of the media that we're consuming and how we're consuming it. Um, so maybe a good question to ask then is, uh, you know, in the the quote unquote outrage machine has been kind of churning away. Um, some of the response to the NDP uh, criticism of the leader and kind of digging up things from the past has been that it's been called a smear campaign. So uh, it's it's been almost universal sort of um, language coming out of 
right of center land. So any thoughts on the smear campaign? Yeah, the UCP seems pretty outraged about people investigating their past statements. Um, And I think the rhetorical framing of smear is a manufacturing of outrage. So I'm just wondering, like, can we even call it a smear when it's stuff that was on social media? Like this wasn't, um, I think that if you're a public figure, you have to imagine that your social media is going to come to light. Like that's, uh, you publish it on social media. That's what we say. We publish our posts. So can you be properly outraged when it comes to light? And another thing is I want us to think about like what exactly is the content of this stuff coming to light. And a lot of what people are coming up with um, are, you know, social media posts, et cetera, that are against marginalized people. So women, racialized people, queer people. But calling it a smear allows the people who are actually saying that stuff, whose like tweets and stuff have come to light, allows them to be the ones who are like, I'm victimized here, I'm outraged, when actually, you know, they're targeting marginalized people. Any thoughts from around the room? Uh, if I can add, um, there, someone pointed out to me today on Twitter that uh, the, the NDP has a thread on Twitter where they call the UCP bozo eruptions. And there are things like you just described where there's a discussion of homophobic or racist comments and they, they're calling them bozo eruptions. And the, the person even said, like, this is actually beyond bozo eruptions. So they're they're upset with the NDP's framing of this. So, um, yeah, some thoughts around the room, though. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to talk about LGBTQ issues are definitely back in the news. Uh, that was partly why there was the strategy, I would say, from the NDP to start campaigning by talking about Jason Kenney's record on social conservative issues. Um, Interestingly, Jason Kenney won the PC nomination. He combined two conservative parties. He did that without a policy platform. When people asked, he said, I want the members to decide we're going to do grassroots policy. I really don't think people care about policy in an election. I think we say we do, but I I don't get the sense that people vote for policies. That's a very small group of nerdy political people. Um, so that being said, who I love, I dearly love the nerdy political people. That's right. Just us. <laughs> so when we talk about LGBTQ issues, depending on what's what side of the debate you're on, Kenny is either an ally who saves queer people from persecution in the Middle East, or he's someone with a longstanding voting record against LGBTQ protections on the domestic front. So in the recent GSA discussion, which is just unvo- unfolding as we're recording, uh, it's easy for the NDP to campaign on this because there's a there's sort of a record of certain comments from um, not not really Jason Kenney. He's actually very cautious, but I would say from the previous Wild Rose Party uh, and the Bozo eruptions, that's where that actually comes from, about um, anti-LGBTQ or perceived anti, anti-LGBTQ. Anti-LGBTQ or perceived anti-LGBTQ issues. Uh, the UCP have announced that they would proclaim a bill called the Election Act. Uh, that's a story that's unfolding right now. And that was passed by the legislature back in the time of the PCs, but never actually enacted by the NDP. So the issue has to do with gay-straight alliances and parental notification. So way back when the uh, NDP actually won, uh, that was a campaign issue, was whether or not it's okay to out gay children or to let parents know that their child is attending uh, a club. What struck me, uh, I wrote about this when this uh, first came up a few years ago. I interviewed a woman um, in Parents for Choice, and the conversation really came down to two totally different worldviews. They're not groups of people that are talking to each other. One is concerned um, about 
children and whether or not they uh, can face persecution at home. We do know that a disproportionate number of homeless youth are um, queer. The other um, are concerned are parents who are saying, well, I want to know what my child's doing and I think I have that right. So they're, they're groups of people that don't actually tend to get in a room together. Can you, that, that's a really good point. And I think I've heard that exact same sort of dichotomy. Natalie, do you have any thoughts on that? That, that idea of, um, you know, the parent, it, it seems to be this idea of parent having some, some rights and those parent, those rights are being taken away. And you brought it up with the rebel point that like this came as a result of people feeling that they had their, their rights being taken away or their voice being taken away. So do you have any thoughts on that? This isn't an issue that I've, ever really followed too closely um it's when i think about it i i i've come from like a a pretty diverse background i grew up in edmonton i went to public school here but by being involved in conservative politics i've got to meet a lot of people that grew up in small towns and in rural alberta on farms that sort of thing where like there were no people of color there were no visible minorities there and i think it's kind of a similar issue like i'm not saying it's okay what they think but a lot of people haven't ever been exposed to this kind of um, topic in the first place growing up, let alone as an adult. Um, I have a really good friend who said he didn't really know anyone who wasn't white until he went to university and he grew up in Edmonton. So I, I, I really don't like talking about this GSA's topic because like, I, I, I don't like just painting one side of you know, an issue just as the bad guys or as the backward people. Like anytime I think about an issue, I'm always trying to think about both sides. Why do they actually feel that way? What are the root causes of their beliefs and why do they think that? So how, how do you feel then that it feels like it's such a key part of the, the kind of outrage that you're talking about from the NDP then? I I sympathize with the issue. Like I, I really think we do need to be protecting our vulnerable youth. Um, we do need to protect... LGBTQ uh, youth and children from persecution, whether at home, in schools, they need that place where they can thrive and grow and be comfortable with themselves. Uh, you know, I was talking about this issue with with some friends and family, and and from their perspective, they were like, "Well, my if my children are you know ten and under, like I should know what they're involved in at school." Um, but if you know maybe they're in high school, it's a different story. There's there's a bit of judgment involved with regards to the kids' age. But my understanding too, from a lot of the outrage on the conservative side, is this idea of what are GSAs teaching my children? There's this loss of control that these parents don't have over what their children are or are not learning in schools with this introduction of something new or or maybe unknown to them. And I think that's where a lot of this fear comes from. Okay, uh, big applause to us for we've been able to talk about a bunch of outragey things without having any outrage. So um, let's go on to the second part of our discussion here tonight. Okay, let's dial this down a bit and look at an example of the outrage machine from the campaign trail and a, beyond that, a quick analysis of how it's working. So this goes to this media literacy, media literacy point that you guys were all making. So um, let's start with Shama. So I think that there are lots of really legitimate reasons to be angry if you're being left behind by the resource economy. Like we see a lot of people. I talk to people um, who are UCP supporters who say, like, I'm angry because I had a job and now I don't have a job. And I think it's really legitimate to be angry at those material conditions. 
But then if you see the outrage machine take that and say, actually, you should be angry at people who aren't supporting the resource economy itself, that seems to be a problem to me because actually what they're the ways that their anger is being directed is to make them support the thing that produced those legitimate grievances in the first place. So if I'm getting you right, they're angry that they lost their job. They're being told to be angry at people who aren't supporting the resource economy, but the resource economy is what caused the problem in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it's a volatile economy. And so if you are just going to say their whole plan is like cut corporate taxes, double down on pipelines and things like that. Um, you know, I don't I'm not making any policy statements on, the, on this podcast about whether we should have one or not. But just to say that, you know, then they end up supporting the thing that actually like creates whatever like bad feelings they have in the first place. Okay. Some interesting points there. Um, so directing anger, taking legitimate anger and directing it at specific things or pointing it uh, or focusing it. Any thoughts on that? Uh, sort of an example from the news and sort of how it's working. Uh, let's go to Natalie. I have an example of of something that maybe is legitimate anger or frustration that shouldn't have made the news or shouldn't be news. So it's it's actually a personal example. Um, a few weeks ago on Twitter, I expressed some frustrations about the UCP policy process uh, in a specific nomination. Um, you know, within a couple hours of like two tweets with no hashtags, I got like 10 media requests, like radio, print, like all these calls, emails, direct messages on Twitter asking me to go on record to talk about my displeasure with an internal party matter. Um, at the end of the day, like I, what does my opinion matter? I'm one member of, I'm one person in the UCP party of 150,000 members. Um, I'm not formally involved in the party in any way. Um, you know, I, I was involved in a couple nomination contests in the fall and was on the board of directors, but like I, I don't matter. And I say that in like the, the way like I, I don't think I'm that big of a deal and I don't know why it was it was so necessary for the media to be hounding me for almost two weeks to comment on something that was an internal party matter with regards to a private organization. To be quite honest with you, it, it's, it seemed like an attempt by the media to make a story out of something that probably isn't actually a mainstream media story. And I, I love the media. I have a lot of like great acquaintances and friends who work in the mainstream media. But like what I said on Twitter in two tweets shouldn't be a story. So this has come up a lot uh, in the sort of post SNC-Lavalin um, reportage. There's been a lot of people f uh, very critical of uh, mainstream media as if it's uh, sort of focusing on the wrong things and ignoring other things at uh, at that at the cost of those uh, that focus on SNC-Lavalin. And it sounds to me like you're saying the inside baseball of party politics or party machine is not really uh, sort of public concern. Is that... Do it's I have not that, right? that it's public concern, but I don't think what one party member said online is cause for like 10 media requests by mainstream media news outlets in our province. Do you think it's part of this outrage machine that we're talking about or is it just a, an annoyance or sort of a, a, a um, I don't know, a looking for something to talk about? I absolutely think it's part of a rage machine. Uh, something like that, like it drives clicks, it drives views to a story. And I think that's ultimately what they're going for. And if we think back to last week with the, there was a, a UCP uh, constituency association board in Calgary 
where there was a letter that they sent in a press release saying like half of our board has resigned. And and that was picked up by a lot of media outlets as well. Um, to the extent where the UCP actually had to issue a statement saying like these guys weren't on our board, they're not even party members. And and so part of me is thinking like did the mainstream media not fact check this before publishing it? Like where where has the standard gone for what can be published and is is news and what isn't if if the party is having to refute something and say like guys they are not actually like on the board and not members like this isn't a story okay so some pretty strong opinions there about what is and is not a story any ideas or thoughts from the other side of the room here yeah, I mean, it seems like everybody loves drama, so they're just looking for like, oh, it's the United Conservative Party? Maybe they're not so united anymore. And so just kind of trying to, as Natalie said, find some clicks and stuff. I think the reason that that is interesting to reporters and somewhat interesting to, again, a small nerdy group of people, <laughs> like people in this room, uh, is because it, like Shama said, it's it's about unity. Uh, Brian Jean, you know, was making some noise right before uh, the writ dropped officially. And uh, there were some little, there's Derek Fildebrandt and doing what Derek does best, which is just <laughs> flinging mud and getting people mad and making memes. Um, and it just, uh, the the compelling nature of that is that there's this group of people who are very likely, sorry, we're not going to talk about polls, but let, if we talk about polls, uh, according to the polls, could form government. And w knowing what they stand for uh, when, they're, when they're a new party, when they haven't had a record, they're not exactly the PCs, they're not exactly the Wild Rose. Uh, so I think there's just, there's a lack of other things to talk about. You can't talk about their previous campaigns. You can't talk about, you can only talk about Jason Kenney so much. I mean, he's, there's certain things he's done. We know about them. They come up over and over and over again. I think by the end of the campaign, everyone's going to know a lot more about Jason Kenney's time in San Francisco than they're going to know about Rachel Notley's education policy. Well, that that leads us into the I think the sprawl article from uh, which was part of uh, what uh, some people called a smear. Um, but basically, they sent a reporter to San Francisco to look into some of Jason Kenney's past. And I wanted to bring up actually the response to that because I think it really amplifies a point I want to make. So the response to that on the fact-checking site um, I found was probably Jason Kenney had like, uh, I think five or six different answers there. And it was the most candid I think I've ever felt I got out of Jason Kenney. So I like, he, I could hear him talking. He, he obviously didn't want to talk to the reporter. He sent some sort of, you know, um, written statements, but basically it was the most candid I've ever, uh, seen Jason Kenney be. And I think that that is actually why there is such the, uh, this like intense interest in anything coming out of UCP land that signals any sort of disagreement because people don't really know what's going on. There's a very sort of protected and safe and message controlled environment. And I think there there is a bit of, uh, to, to defend the media people a little bit, there's a little bit of a question about who these people are and what they're about. Um, th that said, um, what what could media do? I think we're on the media question here. So what could me news media do differently to not be part of the outrage machine? Or should they do that? Should they be part of it? Should they not? Should they be sort of rebelling and, and kind of planting their flag and saying, this is the side we're on? Or should they be doing something different? Any thoughts around the room? Well, I don't think it's really possible 
like I don't think journalistic objectivity is is real. And so I think that uh, if they, I think a strategy could be to have regular kind of updates on what the new policies are and just to like present them in kind of list form just easily digestible because like we've been talking about people don't have a lot of time to read and they don't have a lot of time to um you know go line by line in these platforms and stuff so even just to make lists of like here's all the new policy that's from the NDP here's all the new uh from the UCP really it's a two-party party race um, I know that there are other parties but uh just something like that and then you know they can have their their reporters and their columnists kind of interpret it in different ways but even just to foreground foreground what's actually happening and have that as be like a bi-weekly or something roundup. Natalie any thoughts? Well my 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 only thought on this really is like it's, it's nothing personal that I have against the media it's it's just that there seems to be this fascination on obsessing over this this unity word, this united word. And it's almost like we've all forgotten that like having 100% of your party behind a leader has never happened. It's 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 basically impossible. And to expect that with the United Conservative Party is, is absolutely ridiculous. Um, the NDP is, is, is not an NDP party that we traditionally see in Canada, right? Like they're, they're more on the, the liberal or you know, soft conservative side of the spectrum um, on fiscal issues than any NDP party that has ever existed in this country. And so when I when I think about, you know, what has been driving this narrative in the media, I, I really do think it's just um, the source of what are what are the possible sources of drama that we can kind of pick at until they become bigger issues. And and an issue that, you know, has has impacted 15 boards of directors, or, or maybe not, maybe they're not even boards of direct, or directors on the board, but 15 people out of 150,000 people in a party. And I'm not saying this to defend the UCP by any means, but what what is an actual issue here? Uh, at the end of the day, cons- uh, constituency associations are often like begging people to join so that they get quorum. Um, let's not overstate their importance in the media. I think we're going to get some angry letters from the Green Party after Shama's <laughs> or the Alberta Party. Of them. Well, let's talk about the Green Party and its use of the outrage machine. No. And crickets. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, you're totally going to get some Alberta Party person. <laughs> we exist too. Okay. Well, do, like let's 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 cover that. Do you think do you think the Alberta Party or the Liberal Party, the actual liberal Liberal Party, not the not the Liberal Party that uh, wears a different hat? Um, are they using this? Are they not using it and therefore suffering from not using it? They're sort of in, uh, sort of lost in the in the fray. Or what do you guys think? I honestly, I don't know what they're doing. So I door knocked last uh, election for the Alberta Party, and I've yet to receive an email or anything from them about at which you know, as a previous volunteer, typically they they never leave you alone again. But they just seem to be. They're off doing their thing. I'm not sure what it is. Last time, most of their popularity was on Twitter. Uh, we look forward to your hate mail. Send us some <laughs> uh, some email at info at outragemachine.ca. Danielle speaks for herself. We do, I do not look forward to your hate mail. Uh, 
one thing that I did hear about the Alberta party was Stephen Mandel saying mandatory vaccines. And so, you know, these parties, they matter and they have uh, they, they can put forth policies that can influence what the what the UCP or NDP are talking about. I think. Well, don't they kind of foil like what we're talking about here? Like they're actually talk, they're trying to talk policy like they come out every day with some ideas and they they just get kind of lost in the in the shuffle because everyone's screaming at each other. Is, is that not kind of why we're here in the first place? Like any thoughts? Yeah. OK, great. We all agree. Oh, I want to jump in on the Alberta party, though. Oh. So shout out to my buddy, Ryan Hassman, because it's your topic that we're <laughs> usually comes up here. But at the end of the day, like it is a two party race. Uh, we haven't seen much from the Alberta party. I mean, they've had a couple of policy announcements here and there. But it, it goes back to what I said earlier, right? Like elections aren't won on Twitter, but they're certainly lost there. Um, and if we we're to gauge, you know, if you were to win an election based on how well you're doing on Twitter, like the Alberta party would form government. But what we need to see from the Alberta party um, base, their grassroots are like, where are their door knockers? Are they door knocking? Are they fundraising? Like, what are they doing? And so one friend actually said to me earlier this week, um, like the Alberta party base, like they're super gung ho, but they won't get off like their couch or their computer chair to to go actually do the work. Whereas, you know, you see all these other like the NDP are door knocking, the UCP are door knocking. And, and that's that's ultimately what it's going to take to win an election. And you know, I think the Alberta Party has done a really great draw, job um, getting as much media coverage as they have, given that they they do have such a small caucus. But when I when I think about what this election has become right now, it's like the UCP is putting up policy. My opinions on that right now are irrelevant. I'm not going to talk about that. The NDP has kind of gone negative and has started to sprinkle in some policy. And the Alberta Party has like a, a pretty strange billboard on Jasper Avenue, 109th Street, with Stephen Mandel saying, like, we rebuild Edmonton. That's kind of my thoughts on the Alberta Party. Okay, um, let's go to, let's just talk about some of the tools that uh, the Outrage Machine relies on. So I think we all had some ideas on that, um, some social media stuff, some other stuff. So anyone want to put up their hand and suggest that they will go first and talk about some of these tools that we're talking about right now? Yeah, so I was talking earlier about um, PACs or political action committees. Um also known as third-party advertisers in government speak. So I think in the week ahead and for the rest of the election, we're going to see a lot of the outrage actually manufactured by these groups. Uh, going back to looking at Rachel Notley's Twitter or her Instagram, uh, she can be and should be positive. She's a leader. Uh, she It's her job to smile. It's her job to be before huge groups of people uh, and you know appeal to that base. It's uh, the job of other organizations with a progressive bent, like Progress Alberta, uh, to take the policies and um, issues that progressive voters might have with the UCP and create memes and roll them out on Twitter. Uh, the same for the conservative side. Uh, Tim earlier, he mentioned Fact Check Alberta. So that was the UCP-owned site that um, Jason Kenney 
gave a relatively candid interview to. I think we're also going to see politicians, they don't like the media. The media asks them questions and they'd prefer not to have those questions. So what we see people do uh, is rolling out um, policy or uh, having um, conversations on Facebook Live. They go straight to Twitter. They, they tend to use social media because social media means that they can very tightly control their message. I think that's bang on. Like there has been this drive in politics across all all parts of the spectrum to go directly to the voter. And we see that again with, with Facebook Live, you have um, Instagram Live, those Periscope videos on Twitter, and all politicians are doing it regardless of their partisan background. But the, the common thread behind all of that is social media. They are are connecting with you through your computer on your phone. It's much more personal than it's ever been in politics. And and unfortunately, that also means that the the quality and the quantity of content that we are consuming has declined significantly. If you're limited to 240 characters in a tweet, you're really not getting a nuanced policy take from these leaders. You're getting a lot of rhetoric, a lot of talking points, and a lot of those things that are going to stir up emotions in you, whether they're they're positive or negative. And and so I I think that social media is one of the best things that have ever happened to politics, but also the worst. It's the best in the sense that like politics is super accessible now. You can send a politician, an MLA, an MP, a tweet, and they'll actually respond to you in some cases. And that's that's super cool. It's kind of removed that scariness of politicians from from this world. But on the flip side, it's it's the worst because we have these people who hide behind their computers, don't put their face or their real name to what they're saying, and they just say awful things that I don't think they would actually say in real life, but that are really dehumanizing and just just, you know, threats of violence, harassment, really unacceptable things that are just now super common in politics. I wanted to ask you then, since you brought up the Facebook Lives, so the UCP has come under some heat for its Facebook Lives always seeming to go down when the reporter questions start. So any thoughts on that? To be honest, I've turned off all notifications for Facebook Live, so I don't know when they happen. They're, they they don't I don't actually really even use Facebook anymore so maybe not the question for me I, I have I, I'm I don't know what I, I'm sure that maybe that's happened but like I Facebook doesn't exist in my life anymore any any thoughts around the room on that one the outrage machine is not new like sun sun media the sun newspaper that's that was like pre-twitter it was outlines to get mad about while you're on the bus you don't have to read the story you read the headline there's something that annoys you you flip the page there's something else that annoys you uh so that was the analog version now we're in a digital version so uh, anybody can find anything that annoys them at any point that they like during the day so maybe let's talk about the, I think Natalie brought up the the lack of substance or depth that there is basically this very short, small message. I think a lot of people are familiar with people who only read headlines, to your point, about the Sun Media or Sun newspaper chain and its great headlines. Uh, they still make me laugh to this day. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts? Like, are we able to have a, a political discussion when we're really talking about 240 characters, headlines and emotion? Or is this sort of what we're going to be faced with for the next few weeks? 
So information is moving so fast, as, as you've all talked about. And I really see the outrage machine as being explicitly ahistorical. Like it is not about doing any kind of like historical trends analysis. It's, you can't, you, there's no space for that. There's no time for that. And so it's always just like move on to the next thing. You can't process it. You can't think like, oh, what happens the last time a policy like this was enacted? Uh, let's look at let's look at a graph and see what happened after that. There's no time for that, and so it's just really ahistorical. Okay, and I think another thing that we haven't really talked about that maybe you guys have some thoughts on are some of the terms that we get thrown around a lot. So things like dog whistles or framing. Any 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 thoughts on on those things? Uh, because I think we're talking, as Natalie brought up, that we're 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 seeing politicians and parties and and candidates talk directly to us. And sometimes, uh, as 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 we saw in the U.S. election, uh, because the the example is so stark there that like the the language is very coded and specific to certain people. So, some thoughts on on who's doing that, and you know across the spectrum you know i think the language is getting less dog whistly actually now that people are able to say things that even like 10 years ago would not have been acceptable in public discourse so the term for that is overton window that is that that's being shifted and so you know you hear like christians are are being overrun like it's a category on the rebel that gets lots of clicks um, I'm not sure that you would have seen that 20 years ago and so i think that there's something um happening where dog whistling is a skill that maybe they don't have to do anymore. And we see with these uh, candidates who have been kicked out of the the parties, a few UCP candidates who were kicked out for not dog whistling well enough. And so I think it's really like a, it's a fine line now because it's being crossed so often. um, It's kind of unclear like what, what what is allowable and not term dog whistle more with like federal issues for some reason. I think I think I've mostly heard the term used surrounding like immigration and migration issues that we see federally and less so provincially. But to go back to your earlier point, Tim, about like can we have these policy discussions in 240 characters? I think a great way to answer that question is asking this room, like, hey guys, can you explain equalization? <laughs> like, like we're we're we have this policy put out by the UCP that they want to have a referendum to change equalization. But I would bet like 95% of Albertans like can't explain how equalization actually works. You know, like we've got this rhetoric that like Albertans are paying more into equalization to directly to Quebec. Like that's not how it works. But you can't explain something like equalization in 240 characters. We're we're a bunch of, you know, people that follow politics and, and policy wonks and we like, I can't explain how equalization works. So it, it, it's something like that where we're able to have these, you know, like this kind of outrage machine tweet, let's have this referendum on equalization, like Albertans are um, getting their fair share. Let's let's change that. But what does that mean? Like, what 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 is equalization and how do we need to change it to make it more fair for Alberta? I, I love that example. I think that that's so, so on the money. Um, it's it's almost impossible to have that discussion, yet we are talking about a fundamental change. Like if, if this rever- referendum did happen, I mean, we would be contemplating really messing with the idea of confederation or the way that the, the country works. So that's a really great point. Um, 
any thoughts on our ability to have the discussion or the Overton window, as Shama brought up, uh, that dog, whist- dog whistling is kind of going away and that what's acceptable speech has, has actually grown in, in this campaign, which I think um, some of the followed in, in some of the races in Calgary might say might not be the case or in certain cases is not the case. Danielle? When it comes to dog whistles, people are still, sometimes people aren't even really aware of what the dog whistle is. They they like the sound of it. They don't know exactly why it's quite as horrific as it is. Like the, um, one of the comments that got Kaylin, Kaylin Ford. Ford. One of the comments that got Kaylin Ford uh, ousted was, that she was expressing sadness at the replacement of, of white people from their homeland. So in Canada, that's a particularly egregious thing to say. And, and as a Métis person, it's, um, you know, you just roll your eyes and you're like, again, here we are. Um, it, it is ahistorical, as Shama has said. It's um, it's a term that I think people, they don't necessarily know that they're hearkening back to, like, Nazi ideology with this. So they they think about it and they think about immigration uh, because that that's probably the most commonly dog-whistled subject. Um and they, they don't know exactly why it's appealing, but it is appealing. And, and I think you can't really blame the average person for that. But if you hadn't thought about it, and then all of a sudden, you know, as we're talking about market influences, and you lost your job, and you noticed there were a lot of temporary foreign workers, I suppose it makes sense that you could draw some analogies that would be, you know, very unfair to other people. Um, but that you wouldn't even okay, these things. The the interesting thing about dog whistles is that they you don't even have to rise to your level of consciousness to agree. It just speaks to something to people that that seems to be true, uh, and most people are you know one or two questions away from ignorance at the best of times. Because a dog whistle, if it was said in a private conversation, that was never meant to be public. And I don't say that to defend what she was saying. I think that she made the mistake of trying to bring too much philosophical literature into modern day politics. But those comments were in a private conversation to one individual who leaked them. So I guess my question back to you is, does that count as a dog whistle? I suppose in that context, um, I I don't know what they were discussing. It's hard to say. But yes, it's still, it's a dog whistle terminology because you're talking about replacement of white peoples from their homeland uh whether or not you're saying that to one person or twenty-five thousand people it, it's still hearkening back to a specific racial ideology as a philosophical or academic uh proposition or expression um that wouldn't be acceptable in academic spaces either precisely because it's ahistorical it is not doing any kind of rigorous analysis of of people that is historically grounded i mean of course there were like black and brown people in europe like from millennia ago so it's it's very historical but i uh i just really want to um agree vehemently with danielle's point that it really doesn't matter uh what these dog whistles are referring to specifically the people this is this is a lack of media literacy that we've been talking about but it's also a lack of historical literacy and so it can be something that's appealing or that can make sense on on its face um if you don't actually know about you know history and migrations and 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 things like that okay um one last thing i wanted to get to because i think we have to uh, the idea of framing so um 
basically, as Rachel Notley kicked off her campaign or the campaign for the NDP, she, uh, a lot of this stuff had just happened. And uh, she, I think she was uh, sort of feasting on the opportunity. And she started with, I don't think Jason Kenney is a racist, but... Um, so there's this idea of framing. Like I, I know you guys are kind of probably familiar with it, but like the idea would be um, if I say, hey, guys, don't think of an elephant. What do you think of? You think of an elephant. So you can actually create a frame. It's a sort of psychological sort of tool that you use by what you say. So uh, I think Jason Kenney's also been doing this. Uh, you guys could argue with me a bit on that, but saying like, you know, I don't want Justin Trudeau to push Alberta out of Canada. And it's like sort of, I didn't know Justin Trudeau was trying to do that. But apparently now I'm going to think about, well, is Justin Trudeau trying to push Alberta out of Canada? So just some thoughts on on framing and some examples you've seen. Yeah, I mean, if you think that immigrants are taking your jobs and that's what is the in the media that you're consuming and then you see a woman in a headscarf or you see you know somebody who just who doesn't look like you or you see um, a mosque or something like pop up in your neighborhood the framing of immigrants are taking your jobs which is an economic argument not really historically grounded um, or economically grounded but it is an economic argument it's not a anti-religion argument but it does then allow the anti-religion to to come in Derek, I'm going to bring up Derek Fildebrandt again and his billboard. So he has a billboard accusing Jason Kenney of what he calls Trudeau-style race and gender politics. So that is a really brilliant example of framing, actually taking somebody whose last name is practically a curse word uh, in Alberta and aligning it with your opponent, Jason Kenney. Framing is, I think, just part of basic messaging. It's It's Communications 101, it's a part of every aspect of our life, not just politics. But in in political instances, framing is important because elections are won if you have time, money, and people. And when you are framing what you need in a certain way, it's going to rile up your base to do what you need, which is volunteer their time and donate their money. Come door knock, donate to your candidate. It's, it's driving exactly what your base wants to hear to get them motivated to get knocking some doors, making phone calls, doing lit drops, doing their go TV on election day. And so I'm never going to fault someone in politics for framing because they're doing what they need to do to win. Do you think that, uh, do any of you think that like actually what we're seeing in this political campaign is, is a lot of what Natalie just described that like kind of riling up the base to kind of get the ground game going and, and pay for that and get the donations like are we actually having a discussion about policy at all or is it is it sort of that this this idea that we need to get everyone excited and upset and fearful and angry so they'll go and kind of either stop someone or help someone or yeah what do you think this more and more. And if you think about Alberta politics, there was one party in power for four decades. And so really, it was just if you wanted to choose who was in power, you had to join that party. And so it wasn't this whole province wide thing. And now we do have a province wide thing. Um, so I think the electoral landscape has changed. But I also think the global landscape has changed for all the reasons that we've been talking about. Anyone want to share their stories of joining different parties to Elect different people? No. Well, no, I've only ever around. been a part of one party, but I know what the old PCs like. There are there are former MLAs that have straight up told me like I'm not a conservative, but I if I wanted to be a politician, like I had to be a part of the PC party. And so if I'm thinking about, you know, like 
is this okay? Like, is it okay that we're doing this to rile up the base? I think the answer is sure, why not? Like, it's, I don't think it's necessarily doing any harm. I think it's not a bad thing to ever get people engaged in the electoral process, um, even just beyond voting. And I've never worked on a, a conservative campaign. I've only ever worked on conservative campaigns, but I've never been on a campaign where the candidate wasn't afraid to talk about policy. If volunteers were out door knocking and we had, you know, a, a constituent at the door who wanted to talk about policy, we would always be like, absolutely. Um, you know, let me get your contact information down and our candidate will call you back very shortly. And we always made sure that they called back and they would talk policy. But when you're at the door, it's really hard to and you really don't want volunteers to speak on your behalf. So, yeah, I think it's really great to to rile up your base to get out and volunteer and you can have those policy discussions at the same time. Okay, speaking of riling up, so I think we're going to wrap up, but let's talk about, let's throw forward a little bit and just talk about what we expect. So we're going into, is it week two or is it week three of the campaign? Week 50. Week 50. Yeah, like it's been going on forever, but uh, officially, I think we're going into week two here. So what are you guys expecting from specifically the outrage machine? Like, where are you expecting this to go? Is it going to get more intense? Is it, are we seeing, was it like a sort of flash fire and it's going to calm down and we're actually going to have some discussions of policy like Natalie brought up? What, what's going to happen? Well, I see hashtag queer kids AB trending on Twitter. And so it doesn't seem like this issue is going to go away. And there's a lot of uh, passion around it. So I think that uh, people are holding a, a rally and a march. So it'll be interesting to see how um, the UCP responds to that because they're going to march to Jason. They're going to be outside of his office. So I think he'll have to say something. And just to see how, you know, there's so many emotions around this. So how the machine is going to, you know, process it and, and throw it back at us. Yeah, we're going to see uh, the dumpster fires just getting started. So uh, what what's going to come next is uh, scrutinizing the candidates. Uh, you know, we've already seen a few being ousted from the conservative side. I would put a wager that there's probably going to be at least one or two thrown out from the NDP. So I'm guessing there's a lot of political staffers doing some deep dives into Twitter right now to find some ammo. Yeah, big ups to the NDP oppo team. Like they they had something on the Calgary Mountain View replacement candidate within like 12 hours of him being appointed. Like they did their their job really well. But what I'm looking for or what I'm expecting to see in the next week is kind of like, I don't know. It depends. It depends on which news cycle is going to dominate. Is it going to be UCP policy announcements? Is it going to be NDP smears? Is it going to be uh, the kamikaze campaign or investigation? Uh, is it going to be another UCP scandal? Is it going to be an NDP scandal? Are we going to finally hear from the Alberta party? Like, I, I don't know. And so I think the answer is like, it really depends on maybe what happens in the next 12 hours. <laughs> Come to like rolling joke in here. That gets me to something that uh, I think Danielle Smith brought up the other day, which was that um, her, her impression was that UCP candidates seem to pay the price by the outrage machine that outrage is so focused on these candidates and they get kicked out or they have to resign. Meanwhile, the NDP had two MLAs who were under investigation for sexual misconduct in some way. Any thoughts on that, that like they don't seem to pay the price, but the the UCP side does? That's just the 
people not doing their job quick enough, in my opinion. It's about like finding it, getting the message out there. And something like sexual assault is enough to sink a candidate, even in today's world. So anytime I've run a nomination campaign, before we announce, like I scrub my candidate's social media or I make them delete it. Like, why why do you have social media as a candidate? One, you should never control your own social media as a candidate. And two, why are you putting anything out there in yourself? Like, what were these people thinking? Like, delete your Twitter and delete your personal Facebook before you announce to Elections Alberta and the world that you're planning to seek a nomination. Like, it's pure sloppiness. Thank you very much, guys. It's been a really interesting discussion. Like I've, I've actually, I think, learned a lot from it. Like I, I think I'm thinking about things a lot differently. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm looking forward to the next uh, three weeks. But w- w- any thoughts on that before? Any parting thoughts on whether we should look forward to this or how we should prepare for the outrage machine? I have my popcorn ready, and I'm really glad I'm not campaigning this time around. I don't think there's any preparing for it, and it coincides with the end of term. So I just well grade <laughs> but no I'm gonna be on Twitter the whole time too spend as much time in the dankest areas of the internet that you can I you'll emerge a better person I was already on the rebel I'm not going back I don't know what dank means <laughs> um well I think it means bad but anyway <laughs> thank you very much guys and cut cut